Hi there, it's Francine Lacqua, host of In the City. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not gonna want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. Welcome to In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations and the stories shaping the world of finance. I'm Francine Lacroix. And I'm David Merritt. And this week, a conversation with Paul Pullman. Yeah, Paul was Chief Executive Officer, of course, of Unilever for 10 years from 2009 to 2019. And before that, he worked for Procter & Gamble and Nestle. And he's the author of Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. And I have to say, throughout his years in charge of companies, he's always cared about sustainability. So, Paul, we've been trying to get you on the podcast for a while, and this might be the perfect time with COP28 in Dubai kicking off. Do you have high expectations or any expectations about what can be achieved at COP? Yeah, there will certainly be things that can be achieved, but I think we have to manage our expectations. In fact, uh, I've been at about 15 COPs or, or more, and any time uh, we have this COP, I issue a little bit of a... Uh, warning before that we do have to manage our expectations because we think that this will be this magic wand that all of a sudden solves our climate change problems, our financing problems. That's not going to happen, especially at this COP, which is a very difficult COP uh, in a country that is still heavily dependent on fossil fuel itself. And many people are rightfully so worried about that. But having said that, uh, we made good progress in Paris when we bent the curve from four and a half degrees to below four degrees was the COP21 uh, and, and the Paris Agreement, clearly stating that we want to get to about one and a half degrees that we can afford for a livable planet if you want to. Then Glasgow came, it bent the curve uh, a little bit further, and now we're still projecting to about 2.7, but coming from about four and a half is a good progress. So what we now need to do is, this is the first time since Paris that what you have is what we call a global stock take, which is where all of the countries since Glasgow until now put in their submissions of if they've made progress towards these targets or not. And the reality is we're still far off track. Although there is some progress, we're clearly not moving fast enough. And as I've pointed out many times, we are creating the problems at a faster speed than we're applying the solutions. So where can we expect progress at the COP? Uh, the first thing is um, getting into a greener world will require investment. So that's uh, three to four trillion dollars that will be needed to stay around the one and a half degrees, by all means possible still, if we decide to do so. So there will be a lot of talk about financing. Can we come up with a fund of loss and damage for especially the emerging markets? Can we finally uh, agree on the green fund, which is this 100 billion uh, that, uh, that was uh, agreed already 15 years ago, but still not uh, pulled together? Uh, can we get a reform or a, a further progress on the reforms of the financial institutions? So it's called the Bridgestone Initiative, uh, IMF, uh, World Bank. Can we free up funds to really accelerate the conversion in emerging markets where now all the new emissions are? So that's the financing piece. And then there are two other pieces. One obviously is the uh, greening of society, which basically means 
that we need to triple the investments in green energy. And solar and wind are well on track to do that, but we need to get tripled by 2030 and we need to double the energy efficiency. So that's a really long list, Paul, right? And you just said it's going to be a difficult COP. So that long list of goals, is it in any way achievable in Dubai? I think the most important thing that we need to get out is that the one and a half degrees is still alive, that we're not starting to have Do you think it's still alive? I think many, well, the International Energy Agency, the UNFCCC, uh, which is responsible for the climate negotiations, have issued uh, various reports. Our own studies would point that by all means it's still possible. Uh, if um, we already see, for example, on electric vehicles, that two-thirds of the sales of uh, by 2030 could be electric vehicles. We see wind and solar uh, capacity being online with the trajectory of one and a half degrees. So if we really uh, are serious and unlock those investments, uh, at a at a little bit higher pace, but the technologies are there, the funds are there, and frankly, it would cost us less than not doing so. So that is by all means possible. And then methane, if we attack the methane issue, which obviously is short term, far more burning, is a hundred percent more potent in the time frame that we have, and that's also uh, possible. We have a hundred countries that have signed up to the methane pledge. So this is one feature, I think, of the COP28 and many COPs that it's difficult to get all the countries to agree on something nowadays, especially with the geopolitical tension. But you can get these side agreements that are quite significant in moving things forward. So, Paul, when you read a lot of the press, they say this is really also the last chance to cut emissions significantly for this decade, right? Does the fact that the US and China, the, the world's two biggest polluters, started talking to each other. Does that make a big difference in terms of environmental pledges? You cannot get there without the US and China cooperating. There's no question about it. 80% of the emissions are in the G20 countries and the biggest ones are China and the US. So the fact that we had uh, the meeting in uh, in California between them that lasted four hours, where there were clear agreements to move forward. We had yesterday a meeting with Ngozi at the WTO and talked about that again. It's, it's encouraging. Is that the only solution? No. China actually is moving very fast in many areas. In the US, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, has really changed the environment there. But, you know, we have to be very mindful. But you do have these two on board is absolutely key. I'm interested by, by you saying nothing will really shift. I mean, everyone still feels the need to convene this time in Dubai. You've been to many, many of these uh, conferences. What's it like on the ground, you know, and what will you be doing? Will you be personally lobbying representatives from these countries, from these companies to try to change people's minds, to try to reach some agreement and maybe maybe get some rabbits out of hats that the world isn't quite expecting. Yeah, so these meetings are difficult and the, the mechanism that has been put in place is difficult, but we haven't found a better one. But having agreements nowadays uh, unanimously between all the countries in the world, when you have this enormous geopolitical tension, it's just not going to happen. We see countries uh, like uh, countries like Saudi or Russia outright boycotting these processes and trying to slow you down. And we might see other countries like especially the 70 island states, which are drowning literally, uh, being far more aggressive. So this has always been a process of finding compromise. But this is just one meeting that people work to. Most of the activity happens during the year. But it's important, like on anything, to have a deadline so that some of these agreements are being worked and come together. What you will see in in the COP and, and coming what uh, to the areas that I'm focused on, you will see in the COP quite a big representation of the private sector. Obviously, you'll have the fossil fuel sector there and we'll take that 
hopefully they'll get an agreement on I mean they have to be part of the solution well they now have to show their cards and I think they will be saying uh, ultimately they will be saying if we're sitting here in two weeks time that we will be net zero in the fossil industry but they will only be talking scope one and two which is what is under their own control whilst we all know that all their emissions are in scope three but where we will see progress is in uh, companies showing governments that they have set higher ambitions than the governments themselves. So we have 50% of the major companies in the world now have set net zero commitments, but they're also made, which is not bad actually. It's about 37 trillion in value, but they also have said very clearly, we're at a point now that we cannot get there unless the governments start moving in different directions. We still have $7 trillion of perverse policies and government subsidies that push us in the wrong direction. So we do need governments ultimately. But Paul, how do governments change? And this is something that Dave and I speak, uh, you know, about quite often is that you need to, I guess, galvanize. Yes. And I don't know whether it's galvanizing, you know, you have to talk about the climate change horrors and so galvanize public opinion or you galvanize, you know, by, by protesting. Something I think probably needs to happen to put climate change talks back at the forefront given all the other crises. Absolutely. And and you see now uh, Jeremy Hunt uh, put the uh, report to the Bank of England, for example, on what are his four risks. And all of a sudden, climate change has disappeared when it was last year on the list as one of the four biggest priorities. So we do have some countries and, you know, we have to watch what happens in the US with the next election. But that's the thing. I mean, it's the backsliding, right? Yeah, we have these it. risks, but, but... On the government side. But then you cannot stop. You see, where we are, you cannot get discouraged because then, you, you know, it, it, the alternative is just not there. The cost that we are now incurring, the human suffering that we are incurring. So whilst we at times might be discouraged by some short-term political action, we actually need to go in overdrive. And what you now see is civil society is speaking out more, louder. Employees in companies are willing to walk away from companies not making commitments that, uh, that are, are commitments that they are not living up to. Um, you see uh, companies themselves getting together uh, at, at a increased pace to form these alliances to put pressure on governments. Does climate change have a PR problem? If, if you speak about air quality control, then maybe it galvanizes people wow. more than, than climate change because it also feels very far away when you have two wars when you have inflation cost of living crisis. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more that uh, the way the narrative uh, has been constructed clearly hasn't gotten through uh, to the extent that we need. So we do need to look at a different narrative. What I like is, and I am especially focused on the food system transformation. We've pulled a lot of uh, big companies in the food system together. That's 30% of the problem, as I said, but also 30% of the solution. And by all means, it's possible to go to 50% regenerative agriculture by 2030, uh, which basically means uh, capturing gar- carbon in the soil and creating soil health. It's by all means possible to protect biodiversity or restore biodiversity by 2030. And that alone is probably the biggest opportunity that we have right now, the 30%. So um, governments are frankly not well equipped, not well organized, not well aware of these possibilities and incur quite often significantly different costs somewhere else. Take the UK, for example, a broken Uh, food and land use system. It's the lowest on biodiversity of all OECD countries. Uh, A broken food and land use system, which results in people not eating the healthy food they could be eating and actually paying more for food than they should be paying, ultimately results in 55 to 70 billion extra costs for the NHS. So increasingly, we're able to explain those things to governments. But are they listening? I mean, at the UK, let's talk about the UK government. You know, we've just had the autumn statement from the Chancellor. Um, Are you... 
in any way optimistic that this current government, and we're going into a big election year here, obviously, politically, they're going to make this a priority. Well, clearly they've decided not to, although they put different voices behind that and tried to position it differently. But what we've clearly seen is, um, you know, one year ago, it's uh, let's get to the uh, electric vehicles by 2030 uh, because it stimulates innovation and it makes economic sense. And that's indeed true. Now, all of a sudden, it's no, we don't want to do it. But why? Because it's not popular with it's voters. It's not popular for the voters. I mean, they're desperately trying to see if they can get reelected in, in next year, early next year. That's not mince words around that. So that's why you see the budget cuts now, which are disguised increases actually for consumers. The Bank of England again and the uh, budget office clearly stating that it's not making a big difference. But these are all attempts and that you see in every country where you have short term attempts to woo over the electorate uh, to either limit the damages or, or, you know, get elected again. And, you know, we have to speak out when these things happen to make clear that there was never a meat tax plan in the UK. There was never a plan to uh, pull out the gas boilers in people's homes and, and have them incur extra expenses. There was never a plan to force them into not flying and all these things. But these governments are now become so populist in, in some extent that uh, I think they're increasingly losing the, the electorate. This is not a good move for the government. It is unwise. It is ignorant. It is actually more expensive. And if you see in the UK, the, the majority of people, like in the US, by the way, the majority of people uh, expect governments and business increasingly to attack these issues. But not the majority of people still. If you have to change your stance on climate change or greening the economy to get voters, then there's, a, again, there's a problem of communication. It is very easy to take a populist view and say, we want to protect you from uh, becoming a nanny state to tell you what to do. Or it's rising prices, you know, it's we costs, right? We want to right? avoid you paying more because it is a higher cost. And increasingly, study after study points out, because also of the advances in technology, because of the cost that you would incur if you don't move, that it's actually economically more attractive. But, you know, you have to explain that to your electorate. And there are very few politicians that clearly are first to do that properly. But that's the reality. I'm not denying that. But it means that we have to organize ourselves better around that. When... Sunak came with his proposals the other day. I think it was not well received. It was not well received by the left, the right. It was not well received by the majority of business people. And that message hopefully resonates with the voters as well when it comes to making a choice. I mean, the world does feel very different from the, the COP that was held in Britain, right, uh, in Glasgow. Since then, we've had the rampant inflation. We've got two wars raging now in the European time zone. And so with that has come this, I suppose you could call it a backlash, right, against ESG, because it's gone down the priority list of companies, of people, of households, and people are worried about the cost of things and, and adding to their bills. Do you think that that sort of backward step in terms of a backlash, if you want to call it like that, against ESG, is that just a blip in terms of the progress of uh, greening the economy, heading to net zero, or is it something more fundamental? Well, I think we need to separate two things that you put in one sentence. Uh, there is obviously other short-term priorities that have come to the foreground, tragic as they may be. But I wouldn't immediately, uh, because that is being prioritized, that there is a backlash against ESG. In fact, the world is moving quite fast. It's just not moving fast enough. But what we see this year, for example, is a doubling of the uh, uh, capacity of green energy. We're spending $1.8 trillion to $2 trillion this year on green energy. That's, tri that's twice as much as what we're spending on fossil fuel. Um, so it is moving and it is actually moving quite fast, but we continue, you know, the things like the wars themselves don't help either. They're carbon emitting. The fact that we're getting close to negative tipping points 
uh, the forest fires in Canada alone had emissions that were, you know, quite uh, a significant part of annual emissions. Um, we're getting into a deeper understanding of climate science where the world's capacity to absorb our shortcomings, if you want to, is far less now than what we thought. So that sense of urgency has come up and at the same time you have distractions. Many people are moving, actually many countries are moving, but we're just not moving at the speed. And I always say, uh, going back to the old vehicles, if you want to, it's easier if you're in second gear to move to third or fourth gear than if you would be in reverse. We're not in reverse, but we just need to accelerate. People don't like talking about it. So I remember doing an interview with Larry Fink in Davos at the Euro head lunch, and he was quite emotional for the first time. He said some of the attacks he got in the US were very personal. personal. Yeah. And he also said recently that actually stopping to use the word ESG because it's become too politicized. Is that, is that the right thing to do to, to continue maybe with an ESG agenda without talking about it? No, I don't think it is. I think the, uh, the woke attacks that you see in the US are, are real. We should not underestimate that, but they're not making ground. There's very few legislation that has been passed. The very few proposals in the proxy seasons in companies that have been accepted. And frankly, um, it has been presented in a way that hasn't caught the interest of American people. Uh, even 70% of the Republicans think that whatever investment decisions you make, you should have the freedom to make the choices and, and the factors you want to take into consideration. So uh, which are often ESG factors. We know that companies that are more diverse have a higher likelihood of performing better. Companies that are more aggressively attacking the issues of climate change are better presented, uh, better prepared for the future. And the market actually values them better right now. And explain to me, Paul, why, why we target companies to come on, on, you know, this program and others to talk about ESG. And they're at the forefront of the leaderboard of people that are doing good and will talk about everything except that. Yeah, because, well, ESG, first and foremost, the ESG term is only 10 years old. And uh, certainly uh, the attacks by certain parts of the political parties, mainly in the US, but also coming increasingly to Europe, and uh, heavily sponsored by the fossil industry, have an agenda. And that agenda, we should not be naive about, that agenda will become more overt and more vicious uh, as the conversion is happening. That's because then the vested order will push back harder. We shouldn't be naive about that. What is sad about it is that you mentioned Larry Fink, that he has to put personal guards by his house, that he gets uh, people to, uh, you know, uh, threats that are, uh, you know, to his family and to his life. That uh, And that's all sponsored by, you know, uh, think tanks that are on the extreme right, by some politicians like our FIFAC guy from Cincinnati who wants to be elected. And, and the money traces back to the fossil industry. But what we are saying is, you know, fine, that is the reality of it. But it is so economically more attractive to move forward. That's why you see states like Wyoming or Texas, which are red states, actually moving very fast. These are, those are leading states in solar and in wind, for example. The investments are going. The, the 389 billion that has been made available with the Inflation Reduction Act in the US is matched by the private sector up to about 1 trillion right now. So fundamental shift. Is it enough? No. The US definitely is in a catch-up mode. Did they have to make some compromises given the political situation and also leave some subsidies on, on the plate for the fossil sector? Yes, but you see a fundamental shift happening there. And that shift is not, you cannot stop. Where we are losing out is, uh, and, and uh, Francine, you're totally right there, is because business is silent, or many of them have decided to become silent, 
we don't see the partnerships, the new partnerships emerging. We don't see the ambitions going up versus where they are, but moving we do. So it's in that gap of ambition. And of course, there are shortcomings. ESG has grown so fast that we don't have uh, all the standards yet, but they're coming in. The Sustainable Standard Board, the European uh, uh, legislation, uh, the SEC in the US. Uh, of course, there are companies that make noise that they do things and not deliver on that. But these are increasingly being called out. So the shortcomings of ESG, if you want to, need to be attacked. We shouldn't be na- we shouldn't be too simple about that. But uh, I would not say that uh, the, the the woke capitalist attacks are having the effect that uh, that the um, fasted order was thinking. So this is not an issue of woke capitalism, to be honest. This is an issue of broke capitalism. Paul, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We will be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Hi there, it's Francine Lacqua, host of In the City. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.